Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Samuel Hill, a partner at JME Ventures. Uh, Samuel, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. A pleasure to have you on on the show and to, we had the opportunity to to discuss several times on the show that having a successful scaling up stage starts with a successful starting up stage so on on your front you help a lot of companies going from you know almost founder fit or product market fit stage to uh, to series a and even beyond and uh, would love to pick your brain to get some of your uh, knowledge uh, and experience on your portfolio working with those companies so we can avoid making the same mistakes again and again. So that's how the ecosystems um, evolve. But before that, let's get to know more about yourself. So who is Samuel Hill? And uh, let us know a little bit more about J uh, JME Ventures. Yeah. So yeah, my name is Samuel Hill. I am from Madrid, Spain, and I've been working in VC for the last six years. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, but then I've worked all my life uh, either in technology or in finance, most lately. So I started as a consultant and then moved very quickly to the public markets. And then after doing my MBA at ESE, I, I got to know this wonderful world of, of venture and, and, and I moved here. And I think this this is the, the, the thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life because it's the only thing that I have enjoyed so much and I, that I can imagine myself doing for, for the rest of my life. So Jamie Ventures is an early stage fund with offices in Madrid, in Barcelona. Our focus is mainly um, technology startups from pre-seed to Series A uh, based here in Spain. Uh, although sometimes we also invest in Europe or in the US, but more or less uh, one third of our portfolio is based in Madrid, one third is uh, in Barcelona, and the other third is in either other parts of Spain or as said, uh, we have invested in a Swedish company or uh, US companies and so on. But the thing is we, we need to have a very good, when it's a company outside of Spain, we need to have a very good reason to invest there. So typically, Spanish founders abroad or things like that. Exactly. Okay, got it. That's perfect. And um, so the main topic, what we see again and again and again is companies uh, failing because of premature uh, scaling. So yes. uh, how to assure that you are ready to to scale up and how to go from the pre-seed stage to, to Series A uh, you have a famous uh, or a famous newsletter that you are uh, writing, and that I'm I'm consuming very uh, very strongly every single week, uh, where you talk about the the journey from pre-seed to to Series A. Uh, this week, you also released a new article around uh, vanity metrics, and that sometimes focusing too much in metrics might be uh, a trap. So, what are some of the common mistakes that you see happening again and again and again? Again, or what are the, the common uh, successful traits that successful yeah. entrepreneurs are following? Yeah, if you allow me a little bit of uh, publicity, yeah. the, the name of my newsletter is Suma Positiva, which means positive perfect. sum. And this is an idea that uh, if there is an idea that I would like to push in the world is that one, that the way I understand business is, is, is as a positive sum game. 
I think everyone wins, you know, the customers, the company, the society in general. And I think this is an idea that unfortunately is not very common in our society. So people think that if you are rich is because other one is poor or whatever, but it's not the case in business. So everyone, if you do things right, everyone can, you know, uh, can become richer. So that's exactly. that's more or less the, the idea that I would like to to push forward. And of course, in that newsletter, I, I write a lot about um, startups. And in the article you mentioned, uh, it's called the journey from pre-C to Series A. I try to describe the ideal journey that also an ideal startup should follow, right, yep. in order to achieve success. First thing I want to clarify is, of course, that's kind of a ideal situation and no company at all follows exactly <laughs> that path but it's to provide some guidance because you know I, I think many founders are still very lost because there is so much content so much information out there that sometimes you you feel kind of bombarded with with information and, and overwhelmed you know, overwhelmed yeah you cannot get lost so the way I describe it is uh, when you start the company everything starts with a secret right? Uh, and what does a secret mean? So it's, a, it's an insight, a passion of yours, something that positions you and your co-founder in an ideal position to solve a problem. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ideally, uh, and this is also something that I covered last, last week, that problem should, you should be passionate about that problem because you are going to devote five to 10 years minimum of your life to solving it. You're going to for sure have highs and lows. And during the lows, you have to have something that you can, you know, relate yourself to and and, and be passionate about because otherwise uh, it's going to be very tough. It's, so uh, it I makes said me everything. think, and sorry to interrupt that, it makes me yeah. think of the stay angry, stay foolish of uh, Steve Jobs and uh, and also the start with why uh, of Simon Sinek. So uh, having a very exactly. strong why uh, helps you to go through all the temptations and all the tough times. And there is a lot of tough times when when starting up and when when scaling up. And sorry, yeah. so you, you were talking about the importance of having a passion. Yeah, so you have to, everything starts with a problem worth solving and worth solving in the sense in the economical sense so that means that it's a problem uh, which is being suffered by a lot of people with some frequency uh, you know a uh, big yeah. market in, in other words and uh, and also something that you are passionate about and ideally uh, very well positioned to, to solve so okay. if you don't have that i think that's that's the first problem right so attacking the the wrong problem something which is not very important or something which uh, you are not very passionate about <laughs> then after that of course first thing you you need to do is to develop your mvp and um, because in your your insight is that due to new technologies changes in society whatever so you have found or you have a theory and a hypothesis about a solution for that problem so first thing you need to do is to test if that solution solves the problem for at least a small amount of of people right so that's the first thing to do if you typically you you do that with your own funds or with money from friends and family you, you raise a couple hundred Uh, Mm -hmm. euros and and you start developing your your MVP with a very small team. The first thing you need to check is that that problem is solving that that problem well enough, right? How do you know that? So in my opinion, there are several approaches. Lately, the approach uh, 
made famous by the superhuman founder is very popular. One more or less based around the concept of NPS or doing surveys and, you know, mm -hmm. how many of your users would be really disappointed if your product disappeared or whatever. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. I'm not very fan of those approaches because I think in general terms, actions uh, are much more important than words. So in my opinion, the best proof that a a uh, product is solving well a problem is to look at retention, right? So if yeah. someone uses a product to solve a problem and, and, and does it several times with a frequency, whatever, it means that it worked uh, the first time, right? Absolutely. And it's coming back for it. So I think that's the, the best proof for it. Um, of course, without going too much into the details, you should always try to understand your user cohorts and so on to see how things are mm -hmm progressing with time exactly. let's not get lost into the details and another thing that i think is important is to to, to look for a small amount of organic growth right that that's mm -hmm. the second signal i would say that your problem your, that your product is is working well in order to solve that problem it means that it it not only solves the, the problem for that uh, user group but also that they are sharing with other people right so for me that's that those are the two key signals that i look for companies at the seed stage right so i have forgotten to mention it but for me that's what i call product market fit and i i know that these are very loaded words with many you know many definitions uh very ambiguous sometimes so for me product market fit is to demonstrate that your product solves the problem right and, and exactly. you do it the way we, we mentioned before next step is kind of to prove the business model or their business model yeah. understood as the combination of your acquisition channels plus the the value that you capture from from your users right so you create mm -hmm. some value from for your users and you capture a part of it so the next thing to, to, to test if, is if you can acquire more of those users in a more or less systematic way, right? If you're a consumer company, you would use you know, digital marketing techniques. Mm -hmm. If you are a more a B2B-oriented company, you will start doing sales or, or whatever. But yeah. it's, it's kind of looking for a proof that the business model, and, and in that sense, uh, as we mentioned, the CAC to LTV ratio more or less makes sense, right? Yeah. What's the, the tricky point here? That at at very low scale, those numbers are really hard to get. Of course, your CAC will increase over time and your lifetime value is really hard to assess when you only have a bunch of, of users. They are very exactly. rough estimates, right? Because of that, I suggest that rather than using lifetime value, which might be very hard to estimate at that stage, you should use um, payback periods of your acquisition cost. You would be in a much safer place if you know that if you're a consumer company, if your first purchase already you know, returns you your marketing investment, then you know that if any other purchase comes after the first one, you will be making some profit on that customer. Of course, that's ideal, ideal not, not always the case. In, in B2B, it's harder because, you know, payback sales cycles are longer, payback periods are also longer, 
but but mm -hmm. you should be concentrated on that so to play on the safe side and that's the phase that I call the, the go-to-market fit, right? Once you have proven that your product works, you have now proved that you have an acquisition channel that works. And that should allow you to, to achieve an initial scale, right? So I know mm -hmm. we, are, we are talking about 1 million ARR, something like that. So yep. more or less, you're, you're around those numbers. Okay. Some people would, would, would call that comp that combination of product market fit and go-to-market fit is what many other people call product market fit, right? But exactly. I prefer to separate it in two steps because I think they are different problems somehow. Yeah. We had, we had two guests on the show, which are Alison Pickens and uh, Nick Meta from Gainsight, um, and they've written a, a new a last book, on customer success and um, they talk about three stages which are uh, quite similar to to your thesis which is problem solution fit product market yeah. fit and go to market um, fit and yeah. they also discuss the kind of the profiles and the cs personalities and the sales um, profiles that we need to hire for each of those uh, stages uh, and why we make so many mistakes then on recruiting the right people for uh, each stage of growth, namely for uh, the revenue seats, uh, which mm -hmm. are the most complex ones to fill in after uh, Series A and typically which what will build the growth machine or will not build a growth machine. And, and then there is always this confusion uh, if it is the problem of having the right revenue team or uh, not having the revenue machine, uh, and, and and we never end to a conclusion. Where is yeah. the bottleneck of um, of scale? But you you were talking about um, uh, this uh, having a, a very meaningful problem, finding out um, hypotheses and validating those those hypotheses, having product market fit, and and you were introducing um, go to market fit, and and different channels, uh, etc. Exactly. And after that, so if you, you can reduce a problem to that. So after you have achieved that product market fit and go to market fit, it's a matter of scaling. It, it, then we land in the, in the territory that you usually explore here in your podcast. Exactly. In land. So the problem is that scaling is, 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 is not trivial, right? So a company doing 1 million ARR is a very different animal from a company doing 10 million ARR, not to say exactly. 100 million in ARR. So, but if you look at, at that journey from a quantitative point of view, there are more or less the, the you know, the, the yardsticks that you, you should cover. What I cover in the, in the latest article is that numbers are great and they are excellent instruments in order to <laughs> guide you through this journey, but they are not the only thing that you should look at when making decisions, right? So if we... Remember where we started, everything started with a problem and with a vision to solve that problem, okay. right? Love it. That should be your main guidance. So at some point you should, you know, tolerate having periods of uh, perhaps not, not awesome metrics in order to, you know, advance in the path that, that gets you to that long-term vision, right? And you should okay. also have a, a very clear strategy. You, you should know uh, what modes you will get over time and, and so on. And those things should be always be considered together with the more quantitative you know, inputs to your decisions. Because uh, that's, 
So talking to uh, going back to the common problems that I see, first of all, mm-hmm. uh, one of the worst problems that I see is premature scaling, right? Yep. Premature scaling is investing in customer acquisition like crazy before having proof that your solution is good enough, right? Yep. So then you get to those leaky packets problems and so on because retention is crap <laughs> usually, exactly. right? So th- that's a big problem also before product market fit, um, hiring too many people. Sometimes you feel that with more people, you will iterate faster, but it's the opposite. So more people implies more management, you know, uh, and going slower, actually. So before product market fit, it's much better to have a team of less than 10 people and, you know, that all the communication is very natural and not... There are no processes in place. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing and, and so on. Uh, and once you have already proven product market fit and go to market fit, it's, it's the time to, to scale and to hire more specialized people for each one of the functions. You know, uh, another mistake that I see, yeah, that that, that was the, the one that I was referring before, like being data-driven right and i don't want yeah. to be very picky with the language but uh, for me to be data-driven and data-informed are different things a data-driven company is like the one that follows blindly what the number says mm-hmm. and they want to a b test everything and they, they they think that they can a b test their way from start to ipo <laughs> okay exactly, uh, exactly. Other companies, you know, more follow more a fat startup, you know, uh, process in which <laughs> they don't look at numbers at all. I, I think like in many other cases, uh, in the middle ground, there is the truth, right? And as, as we said before, you have to make decisions, take into consideration your long-term vision, your strategy, and with time, validate those decisions with numbers. So to check your KPIs, your metrics, and to see if they make sense and if you're going in the right direction. Yeah? Exactly. Because, yeah. There is this, this famous book by, by Bill Walsh, uh, whose title I love, and it's that the score takes care of itself, right? If you are doing yeah. all the right things, the metrics will be good. So, exactly. But you shouldn't over-optimize everything, right? So Exactly. Something that I, that I see again and again and again, and this is definitely one of the critical ingredients that we always discuss on the show, which is radical focus, is that on a kind of a, a stage of finding product market fit or problem solution fit, product market fit and, and go to market fit, it is a, a search problem. It is a search mindset. So it's about... Yeah testing, validating um, hypothesis. So in a certain point when scaling up, it's not about inventing or reinventing the wheel. It's about doubling down on what is working and being very disciplined. So it's it, it's much more oriented on execution. So there, there is another trend and another theories that goes that we also can lose product market fit at certain stage. So we might need to come back to product market fit stage, even if we are scaling up, or we might we might face a growth plateau and we are not able to go through the 5 million or the 6 million or the 7 million. And it seems that getting to the 10 million, it seems impossible or even getting to 10 and then getting to 20 or 50, it seems really impossible to to get there. That's those kind of growth plateaus that we need to redefine ourselves. 
But one of the mistakes that I see a lot and a lot is increasing the complexity, the number of variables on the equation, where mm -hmm. what we need to do is to uh, simplify and to reduce the noise, for instance. So there are three critical, three critical variables for me in, on radical focus, which is the variable geography, the variable sector, and the variable um, size. So uh, mixing in a, from 1 million ARR to 10 million ARR mean market with enterprise is dangerous. Mixing three or four, five geos at the same time is dangerous. Mixing 10 sectors or five sectors at that stage will slow down um, your progress. And, uh, and sometimes that's when being a little bit data-driven helps. So what are the cohorts and what are the variables or the geos, the industries and um, the sizes of clients where we are having more success with and where we see more net revenue retention. So where we are growing more from our customer base and just doubling down there and increasing our uh, ACVs and, and harpers. But usually for an entrepreneur that is changing the mindset from startup mindset to the scale-up mindset, this is a very difficult uh, shift from my experience. So we see a lot the shiny object syndrome. So it's, yeah. it's, it starts being a little bit boring to just build a team, hire the right people for the right seats, making the tough decisions of understanding that maybe those people were not a very, a very good hire from ourselves as leaders and having the responsibility of just moving forward and say, sorry, I made a mistake. Uh, I need to find a, a, a new person. Or maybe uh, I didn't have the, the right platform to start hiring those people and I made the mistake of uh, starting to hire when we didn't have the, the framework in place um, yet. So. How can we help founders and leaders to be more uh, laser focused uh, on when they are, let's say, post Series A, going from Series A to Series B, from one million to five million? That I feel that you you also still follow a lot some of your portfolio companies at this stage, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm gonna repeat myself a little bit. But, <laughs> exactly. um, Sorry about that. <laughs> No, not, not a problem at all. Uh, what I would like to say is we see that a lot. You know, uh, companies pitching us and they tell us that they have customers in 80 countries, okay? And that's, in many cases, that's worthless, right? So, because sometimes your strategy, uh, for instance, if you want to achieve uh, no, network effects or whatever, you have to hit some critical mass in some geography. So, it's much more useful or in much local. more valuable to have, you know, a critical mass in a city. If we go to a marketplace, for instance, sometimes it's much more useful to have critical mass in one city than having, you know, supply and demand spread all over the place. Right. Love so if you know example. what your strategy is, you, you should follow that. So countries is a vanity metric uh, many times. Uh, what was your other example? Yeah, different segments. Th that's very clear. So normally, you know, enterprise customers uh, have higher uh, ACVs and therefore you can use more expensive acquisition channels like sales or whatever. Mm -hmm. So more or less your ACV determines what acquisitions channels you should use. So if you start to mix all that, then the economics are gonna break down, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make uh, more sense. Um, but yeah, so as I said, the, the, for me, the, and this is very well known, the, the, the CEO has three main functions, right? One is to decide the strategy, the other one is hiring, and, and the other one perhaps is well, fundraising and communicating, right? 
So, but many for many CEOs, as you said, is it's difficult to to flip the switch from being a doer as you are usually doing these exactly. earlier stages to be, you know, to hire people to do things for you to just set the strategy and communicate it like crazy to the organization to the fundraising. It's a it's a hard movement, right? And many people are not are not good at it. So many founders. Uh, Almost since the beginning, they, they know that they are not going to be perhaps the best CEOs for, for all the, you know, for all the journey. Exactly. And this is a very good point to move to the second critical ingredient to scale, which is world-class uh, leadership. And uh, I'm seeing this again, again and again and again, always the same problem. And uh, let's focus here a little bit on the one to, to 10 million. So it's after post-series A, you start growing, maybe you, you double or triple from for two or three million, you get closer to five million. And yeah. you need to have those right positions on what we call the revenue seats and yeah. product, CS, sales, and uh, and marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we always discuss um, that sometimes maybe we did the right hire on the VP of sales seat. So that's the most controversial seat. And if we ask any founder or any VC, uh, usually um, the most difficult position to hire. And I'm seeing sometimes in the show that people are now with questions around if it is the VP of sales or the VP of product. So the VP mm-hmm. of product is, I think there is a, a very interesting study, uh, study uh, from Atomico or Index uh, on that as well. That's uh, Usually we hire uh, very late uh, product leaders uh, in Europe compared to, um, to to the US. I think it's from last year. I uh, don't remember the, the source. But um, long story short, sometimes we are treating um, the, the, the process of building this growth machine as a functional problem instead of as a cross-functional problem, a framework problem, maybe what you were calling go-to-market fit. So mm-hmm. assuring that we have a process to acquire and retain a customer uh, in, a, in, in a repeatable, profitable, and scalable way. And if it is possible, also cash-friendly uh, way, it would be uh, yeah. even, even better. And, and we start blaming each of the seats of those four revenue seats. So it, it's not the CS guy that is not able to upsell, or it is, it's, it's really the sales guy. So we are not able to acquire, oh, but we are not converting because we don't have enough leads and, and enough qualified opportunities. So it's the marketing guy, it's the demand gen guy that is not doing the job. Oh, no, no but forget all of this because our product is not prepared to scale yet and our customers are telling us this and we might have weeklies and leadership team uh, meetings again and again uh, blaming each other about why the process is not working and usually what i see it's a cross-functional mindset is a is a way of working on the framework together as a team instead of as individuals as functional leaders discussing with each other to see who is the guilty person mm-hmm. and, and embracing the problem and, and, and solving it um, as a team. And this is a very important role of the CEO to bring those people together as a team yes. instead of dividing them and letting them blame each other or even being the first one to start blaming uh, each of the seats. So I, I know this is a controversial uh, question, but I, I believe that building high-performing teams is really, really crucial at that early stage, uh, early stage of scaling. Let's let's call it. Um, so, w- what is your point on that? What what are the common mistakes of figuring out what are the right people for those seats from one million to ten million ARR? 
Yeah, I do agree. That lack of you know alignment between functions or department is is uh, is really really painful. Uh, one thing one thing that I've seen being done with uh, some sort of uh, success, degree of success is. Uh, so you have to develop empathy, right? And understand why, you know, why sales is complaining about leads and why marketing is, is you know, telling that sales is crap at closing or hurt or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes what you, what you can try to do is shop places. So put the marketing guy in the product shoes for, you know, two weeks and the product guy do sales for two weeks. So it's a great one. Yeah. Perhaps it will be, it might be a catastrophe, but perhaps they learn a little bit more about what the difficulties of, of each role are, right? Exactly. So I, I think in the end is, is, as I said before, having a very clear strategy, knowing where we want to go and why are going there, having very clear goals, alignment, communication, and then em empathy and, you know, uh, you have to avoid as much as possible. You know, the, the one the one beautiful thing about the startups is that uh, they are very flat hierarchies, no politics, and, and so on. So you 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 shouldn't lose that, right? So you yep. you should do everything in your hands in order to to avoid that. And I think that when people start complaining about the other ones, is the start of you know of, of becoming a political organization, right? Exactly. It's something that, that that you need to to avoid at at, at all costs. Yeah, at all costs. Yeah, exactly. That's so and and the last ingredient uh, before we close the show is uh, culture of execution. I know that as we discussed in preparation of this podcast, that you are not so much in the daily basis of of companies to suggest some meeting rhythms that they are uh, adopting. So we will uh, jump this this one on purpose and, and close uh, with our favorite question for the show, which is: If you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, five or six years ago when you when you joined it. Uh, the VC world and uh, JME Ventures, uh, what advice would you offer to, to that Samuel? Um... Yeah, it's, it's very simple. It's everything about the funders. So you will never, you will never regret it investing in great funders. It doesn't matter if the company goes uh, good or bad, and you will always regret investing in, com in people that you're not uh, convinced with. And the same, it doesn't matter if it goes uh, good or what. So it's all about the founders. They, they are the ones that make things happen. And uh, the more I know about this business, the more convinced I am that everything we do as VCs is to bet on people, to bet on founders. And, and that's the most important thing. Sometimes we, we tend to overthink about market sizes and business models and whatever, and you know, uh, in a, such a fluid environment uh, as the one we operate in, this is almost worthless sometimes. You have to invest in good people, then they will, they will find a way. Exactly. What a great message to close the show. Uh, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experience you. with the audience. You are Big always pleasure. welcome to the show. Thank you. Bye Likewise. Bye. And to our community, thanks for being on that side. We keep bringing you the best of the best, the best tools, the best frameworks, the best resources. Uh, so you uh, are able to scale your business in, in the best way possible and uh, go through these pandemic times that we are living today. So see you soon and keep scaling.